You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you. Why? What's it say? Because he trusts in you. So the exhortation then is trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock, our only sure foundation. Philippians chapter 4, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Just take it to God, pour it out to him. And what will happen? The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Have you ever had a time when By everything that's true of you, you ought to be full of anxiety, fear, upset, distress, dismay, and you find an unexplainable peace in your heart. And you know it's unexplainable because it cuts across everything you are, (laughs) naturally. That's the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. The promise of peace is a precious one, but it is, if we're honest, so often elusive. As the saying goes, there's always something. Or as Job put it, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. My dad was particularly fond of that one. It's one of the reasons that I, that's just sort of locked in my mind. (laughs) He used to quote that an awful lot. Man is born to trouble. It's just the reality of our lives. This morning we're going to be beginning, as you already heard in praying, a study of our Savior's prescription to troubled hearts, prescription for peace in troubled hearts. Jesus is addressing his closest, dearest, innermost circle, the 12. Actually, when he comes to these words, it's the 11. Judas has already left the room. Their world is starting to crumble, and it's about to get hit big time by a full-on tsunami, and Jesus wants to prepare them. John chapter 14, if you haven't opened it yet, John chapter 14, right at the beginning. We're just going to look at a few verses today as we start into this. But there it starts, right at the beginning of chapter 14, let not your hearts be troubled. There are those great words, those, those really precious words from our Savior Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. What is uppermost in Jesus' mind now here in the the upper room, the final night, the last night with his with his inner circle, what is uppermost in his mind now at this point in the evening is to comfort them, to reassure them, to give them strength and to establish their troubled hearts. He's just told them, to go back to chapter 13, that's where this last evening begins, he's just told them that one of them is going to betray him. And then after he sends Judas out and is alone with the 11, the betrayer is gone, He informs the 11, I'm about to leave, and I'm going somewhere you can't come right now. Just imagine how they're feeling when they hear Jesus telling telling them, I'm leaving, I'm going away. 
and you're not going to be able to come with me right now. And to top it all off, he tells Peter, right at the end of chapter 13, before sunrise, you're going to deny me three times. And just imagine the atmosphere, the tension, the somber. I mean, somber is even too weak of a word. The, the, their hearts are beginning to shatter at these words. And so Jesus moves immediately after this triad of bad news. He moves to reassure them. Just look at the end of 13 to just watch the flow here because I say this a lot, but I'll keep saying it. We have chapter divisions in our Bibles, and they're there for a real good purpose. They help us locate a place so we can together get there. But sometimes they break the flow for us. We think chapter 14, something new, and we don't see the connection sometimes. Just read the end of chapter 13 with me. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And absolutely Peter meant that with all of his heart. So far as he knew himself, at that moment, he would lay down his life for Jesus. Jesus tells him, will you lay down your life for me? Very, very somberly, truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Space of maybe, who knows, what, six to eight hours. You're not just going to not lay down your life. You're actually going to deny you even know me. And so, right next words we read, the very next words we read are, let not your hearts be troubled. You see something here of the heart of our Savior, not only for Peter and not only for the 11, but for us, too. Hear this, take it personally. This is a good time to take it personally. This is addressed to us. And then later on in chapter 14, verse 27, just look at the screen, or you can look in your text, of course. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Despite what you're hearing, despite the fact that someone has gone out to betray me, despite the fact that I'm leaving you, despite the fact, Peter, that you're going to turn on me and deny me shortly, don't be afraid. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Now think about this for just a moment before we press on to, to kind of break this down a little bit. When I read words like this in the Bible, for example, let me, let me give you another example. When an angel shows up and says, fear not, everybody collapses on the ground and faints, dead, right? <laughs> I always want to say when I read something like this, is uh, too late. <laughs> you know, let, not your heart be, let your hearts not be troubled. I'm going, too late, what is, Jesus, what is this indicating to us? What is this telling us? Something very, very important for us to see here. Jesus knows their hearts are already troubled. His heart is troubled, in fact. He is not for a moment suggesting us to us that we need to suppress our humanity, some kind of unrealistic, unnatural, kind of false, just kind of stuff it. Not at all. What Jesus is making clear to us is that we're not victims of our feelings and our circumstances. What he's indicating to us is that we can take our hearts in hand and we can address them. That's what he's calling upon his disciples to do. 
He's not trying to, to, to make them feel like, oh, I must not be a good Christian because I am feeling troubled. He's saying to them, in the midst of your trouble, in the fact that you do have a troubled heart, here's what you need. Here's how to deal with that. Psalm chapter 42, Psalm chapter, Psalm 42. Uh, I, didn't have the, I don't have this on the screen today because it came to me just very late before starting this morning. But here is familiar. I'm sure many of you know this. Why are you cast down, O my soul? The psalmist is asking himself. He is cast down. And he's, he's going through that process you and I often go through. Is Why am I feeling like this? What's wrong with me, Lord? Why can't I cling more firmly to your promises or to your truth? Why am I cast down? Or why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? And then what does he say? He says, hope in God for I shall yet praise him. That's essentially what Jesus is saying here in John chapter 14. The psalmist goes on to say, my soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you speaking to God. You see that? That's going to come up again this morning. Being troubled and finding strength and hope in God are not opposites. They go together. The one becomes the stimulus for the other. Because my heart is troubled, I turn to God. And he is my hope and he is my strength. Well, first here now in John chapter 14, let's consider the selfless compassion of our Savior. Verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Despite Jesus' own troubled heart, he sets aside his own needs. He sets aside the own anguish he is in to put his disciples ahead of himself, to care for these men who are being devastated and are going to be devastated even worse in the next 12 hours or so. Back in chapter 12 of John, that's where we see the triumphal entry. That's Sunday of this last week. So it's just a few days before what we're reading in John 14. On Sunday, triumphal entry, he enters into the city of Jerusalem. And at one point, he shares with his disciples, verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of God, or to be glor- Son of Man, excuse me, to be glorified. And he's referring to why he's come, what this is all about. And just a few verses later, he says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. He's fully aware of what's going on. And we're told as we come into chapter 13 that Jesus knew that it was time for him to depart and return to the Father. Jesus knew that God had entrusted or placed all things into his hands. He knew his betrayer was in the room. He knew within a few hours he would be arrested And soon thereafter, brutally beaten, savagely scourged, and then nailed to a cross by 9 a.m. in the morning. And even knowing that he's got a man going to go out of the room and stab him in the back, a man he's invested three years in, yet what are we told at the very beginning of chapter 13? If you look at verse 1 in chapter 13, 
When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Do you remember that means not, it it can mean two things. It can mean to the end of time, to the end of his life, to the end of his ministry with and to them, but it can also mean to the nth degree, to the end of loving. And it probably means both. This is John. John loves to write these little ambiguities that can be taken more than one way because they're all true. And both are true. This is the amazing, incredible love of our Savior for us that in his night of anguish, he is able to put his men and their needs ahead of his own. This is one of the burdens of leadership. If you are a parent, you have experienced this. You know there are times where your own heart is having difficulty bearing what is happening, and yet your children need you. And you are able to care for your children. Every teacher, every coach, every supervisor, every pastor has gone through this at one time or another. It was the love, the deep, deep and profound love of Jesus for his men. Once again, Jesus is the supreme model for us of what it is to love. So let's not, let's not miss that. Let's not just sort of slide right over that. At the very beginning of this, again, quietly, John doesn't put a, a bright light there to say, notice the love of Jesus, but the love of Jesus comes shining through. He, his heart is troubled. He knows the brutal ordeal coming in just a few hours, but he is able to love his men so well. The second thing we want to look at this morning here is our only true and unshakable foundation. That's what Jesus is pointing to. These are familiar words, especially for those of you who have been Christians a a long time. You've been in a church environment a long time. You've been a Bible reader and student a long time. These are some of the most familiar words of our Savior. Everyone who has been in the church would know what he's saying here. But again, familiarity, I think, becomes our enemy sometimes. It takes on the kind of Pledge of Allegiance effect. You can stand there, you know, at our, at our basketball games. I, I serve in the basketball games of our high school for the, for the boys' teams. And they always give the, you know, say the Pledge of Allegiance unless the Star Spangled Banner is being played. And you can just stand there and you can recite the Pledge of Allegiance and not even hear a word you just said, right? <laughs> I do it. We could say the Lord's Prayer without even hearing a word we say. It's just there and it just kind of comes out. And the same is true of the familiar words of our Savior, but these words are the the absolute foundation of the peace for troubled hearts that Jesus is offering. This is our only true and unshakable foundation. What does Jesus say next? Let not your heart be troubled, what? Believe in God, believe also in me. Now, the word believe here, and this will explain, some of you may have other versions. You may have a version that says, you believe in God, 
So believe in me too, maybe the flavor of your version. The ESV, the NASB, as we just mentioned, both of them are challenges. Right now, your hearts are troubled. What you need to do is you need to keep trusting God and trust me. The word believe here, the reason for these differences in translation is because they can be understood different ways in the Greek language. It could be an imperative or an indicative. And you're all going, what? <laughs> an imperative simply is, is a command. Like, believe. It's an instruction, an injunction. An indicative is a statement of fact. So if you have a version that says, you believe in God, it's like, you believe in God already, so believe in me. The first one is the statement of fact. The second one, then, is the challenge or the injunction. Only two, ver if you think about it, there are four possible combinations that you can work out from this. But really, the two we have in our versions are the only two that really fit the context. He's either saying to them, look, men, you, you know, you already have faith in God. You need to have faith in me, too. But, but I, I favor the ESV and many, many commentators, perhaps most, I, I did I can't say with absolute certainty most, but it would seem that most favor the latter one, the ESV and ASB. Believe in God. He's challenging them now. This is his first word for troubled hearts. Why are you cast down, oh, oh my soul, within me? Hope in God. Jesus is saying exactly the same thing that Psalm 42 says. Makes you suspicious that maybe Jesus knew his Bible. Let me give you an interpretive rendering of how I hear the flavor of this opening verse. I know that what I'm telling you is shaking you to the core. Don't give way to dismay. Hold on to God. Hold on to me too. Cling to these promises. And then he'll unpack those promises and we'll talk about the first of those in just a few moments. But here, believe in God. Believe also in me, our only true and unshakable foundation. Please, please hear that. Here's part of the problem. These words can very easily sound trite. These words can very easily sound like a platitude. I'm devastated, I'm in anguish, and you're giving me a little spiritual church talk band-aid. Just have faith. Just believe in God. And we can be guilty of that kind of triteness. We can be guilty of that kind of platitude. And what we're saying, unfortunately, whether it's in our hearts consciously or not, we are sometimes conveying to the hurting person that we really don't care. We really don't want to be bothered with the details. Thank you very much. I'm in a hurry to get out of here and go to lunch. And so when we speak a platitude, we really injure more than we help. It'd be better just to zip it than to say anything at all. We're to weep with those who weep. But I doubt that any of us would think that Jesus is uttering platitudes or being trite here. These men's world is about to be shattered. It's already shaking. You know, if you think, if you've experienced a serious earthquake... And you think, okay, you're feeling a little bit of tremor, right? And it's making you nervous. And then, wham, the big one actually hits. The big one hasn't quite hit yet, but they're 
The room is already shaken. These men are already in trouble. And Jesus is pointing them to where they need to look and where they need to set their hearts that their hearts be not troubled. The full significance of these seven little words, believe in God, believe also in me. The full significance of these seven words could take us a whole series to unpack and to appropriate, really spend a whole lifetime appropriating them in our own hearts. Today, I just want to try to help us kind of catch the, the significance of, of saying these things that could otherwise seem so trite or so platitudinous to us. Last Sunday, we were singing a song. It's newer, I think, for us as a, as a group, newer for me, Shane and Shane's song, Though You Slay Me. Here are the words. Though you slay me, yet I will praise you. Though you take from me, I will bless your name. Though you ruin me, still I will worship. Sing a song to the one who's all I need, our only true and unshakable foundation. My heart and flesh may fail. The earth below give way. Hang on to these thoughts right here. We're coming back to them. The earth below give way, but with my eyes, with my eyes I'll see the Lord lifted on high that day. Behold, the lamb that was slain, and I'll know every tear was worth it all. Last Sunday when we were singing this song, God addressed me personally through that very, those very words, though you slay me. You know, when we sing, Ephesians says this, right? Ephesians chapter 5. When we sing, we are, of course, making melody in our hearts to God in worship. But what else are we doing? We are speaking to one another. We're actually preaching. You get to preach. You women get to preach too when we sing. You get to Speak to one another. The truth of the music and the words combined can be so, so powerful. And I know you must have experienced times of great encouragement or times of deep, maybe, conviction as we sing together. So you understand how the songs can speak to us. And last Sunday, sitting right back there with my family, God said to me, I know you don't like some of the things I'm asking you to go through but I haven't killed you yet. Are you really willing to say, though you slay me? Though you slay me, I will praise you. And that gave me renewed desire to surrender my whole life and my whole heart to him. Job, of course, is the one who said these words originally. Job chapter 13, verse 15, though he slay me, I will do what? I will hope in him. That's precisely what Jesus is wanting to say to his men. And as the song put it, the whole world can crumble, be shattered. Here is a psalm. I, 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 this is one of the psalms, places in the psalms I particularly love. Psalm 102, verse 25. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth. Just notice this. And the heavens are the work of your hands. God's the one who put it all together. It exists because of him. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away, but you are the same, and your years have no end. So what? Well, here's so what. 
the children of your servants shall dwell secure. It's not the security of our lives, the things we so readily put our security in, or base our security on, put our hope in. Even if the world itself comes apart, the planet itself comes apart, the children of God's servants will dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Believe in God. Believe in me too. This is not a platitude. This is the foundation of being able to know the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. Perhaps my my. If you know my makeup, it's, it's these, these. Never mind. Perhaps one of my favorite of all of the scriptures on this theme is the end of the book of Habakkuk. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. That picture at the end there is really from Israel. The ibex. It's a kind of mountain goat. Translated here as deer. Very sure-footed. Can scamper up the side of a, a cliff and you look at that thing and say, I don't think I'd want to climb up that very sure-footed. That's the picture he's calling upon there to talk about how he will stand on this unshakable foundation even if his entire world collapses, even if the entire economy collapses. For us, we're talking about grocery stores having nothing on the shelves, gas stations. There's no gas lines. There's no gas at all. There's just, what do we do? Our cell phones have suddenly become useless. We can't communicate with anybody. We can't even call our family to say we're okay. That's an expression coming from a man who started out at the beginning of his little book, Habakkuk 1, complaining to God and complaining that God wasn't responding to his prayers and complaining that he could not understand God's seeming inaction and indifference. And then even when God spoke to him, gave him his first response, Habakkuk found himself in either, even a worse tailspin because it didn't make any sense what God just told him. He was totally baffled. God basically said, you know, he, he was praying for Israel. He was praying for the people of God who were in gross disobedience and idolatry and asking God to revive his people, to spiritually awaken his, his people. I mean, what better thing to pray for? Do you not pray, I think, for us and for, for, the, for Christians in America that God would do a powerful work and make us what we need to be and awaken us where we're asleep? Isn't that a great and wonderful prayer? And wouldn't our natural expectation be that God wants to do that? 
And God comes to Habakkuk and he says, well, truth is, Habakkuk, you're not going to believe what I'm about to tell you. I'm bringing the Iraqis to Israel and they're going to crush you. And that threw him into a big tailspin. He didn't know what to do with that. He says, that contradicts everything I, th- I know about you, God. How can you do that? They're worse than we are. They're just gross idolaters, pagans. They don't even know you. This, this just, I don't know what to do with this information. God, God speaks to him by the end of the book. Where is Habakkuk? He's no longer, he's no longer in dismay. He's no longer... You know, he still got his questions. Not all of his questions have been answered, but his, his believing in God has been established. And so he says at the end, even if my whole world, the entire economy collapses, I don't even know what I'm going to have to eat tomorrow. And that's true for the whole nation. I will rejoice in you. And so for these 11 men in this upper room with Jesus, being told he's leaving. And they're facing, in the morning, a horrible ordeal. Jesus says, believe in God. Believe also in me. Understand where your true foundation lies. There's also a marvelous principle. I mentioned this a little bit earlier. In Psalm 56, verse 3. I love this one too. When I am afraid, when... I am afraid. I will trust in you. It's the anxiety that drives us to God. Fear and faith are not mutually exclusive. We've we've built some sort of a false spirituality that says, if I had faith, I wouldn't feel afraid. That's not biblical. What's biblical is what do you do with your fear? What do you do with your troubled heart? That's what's biblical, is you take it to God and you turn to him and you put your faith in him. Now, Psalm 56, it's no, little, it's no small trouble that David is talking about in Psalm 56. If you know your Old Testament, your story of David well, you'll remember that Saul at one point, this is before David becomes king, but he knows he's to be the next king, and Saul is trying to kill him, and he's chasing him all over the desert, trying to kill him. And David at one point just kind of in exasperation says, he's going to get me one of these days, I need to leave, and he decides, I'll be safer among the Philistines. Now think in modern world, this is a Jew, a leader of the Jews, and he's going to head to the Palestinian town. So I'll be better off in the Palestinian town. He goes there expecting to just be able to hide, to blend in. But lo and behold, they recognized him. And again, if you know the story, you remember, this is where he drools in his beard and starts acting like a crazy man. And the ruler of the town basically says, I got enough crazies in my court. Get this guy out of here. <laughs> And David was delivered. But he's saying, right there in the middle of the sheer terror of realizing they know who I am. They know I am the one who has been anointed to become king of Israel. The terror that must have shot through his heart when that 
when, they re- when he realized that? What did he do with that terror? When, when I am afraid, I will trust in you. Faith is an enormous and central theme in God's word. What did we say last week? Well, we've been saying it, I guess, for two or three weeks now. Now remain faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. We know the greatest of the, the, the great virtues is love. There are three greatest virtues. The other two are faith and hope. And here we have the second In the chapter before, chapter 13, Jesus has given them the new commandment. Love each other as I've loved you. Now he's calling them to the second. Faith. This isn't some little small thing. This isn't some just pious platitude. This is at the heart and soul of our relationship with God. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You know we're saved by faith. You know our whole life is a life of trusting God. Now I'm going to take you right to the heart of what God says to Habakkuk. He starts out complaining. He ends up rejoicing in God regardless of how bad things may get. What is it that transforms his heart? It's right in the middle of the book, chapter 2. This is what God says to Habakkuk. The vision awaits its appointed time. What that means, I'm going to have to translate, so we, for the sake of time, I'm just going to do it real quick, okay? What he's saying here is, Habakkuk, you don't understand what I'm doing. By vision here, he means the prophetic message that's outlining the future, what God is going to be doing for Israel in the future. And what he's going to do is he's going to judge the Babylonians and liberate Israel, his people. He's telling him, you don't understand what's happening now, but my plans and my purposes have an appointed time. They're going to come at the time that I have appointed. It hastens the vision to the end. It will not lie. You can trust my word implicitly. If it seems slow, here's a word to all of us. If you want to understand faith, Here is one of the central words of faith. If God's promises seem slow, wait for them. It will surely come. It will not delay. That is, it won't be late. It won't miss God's timetable. What God is telling us is somebody else is in charge of the, the calendar here. Somebody else is in charge of the timetable. We aren't. In our limited understanding, we don't get what God is doing. What do we do when we don't get what God is doing? We understand that he controls the clock. And we trust him and we wait. Then it goes on to say here in Habakkuk, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. That's talking about the Babylonians. So he's making a a contrast here between the, the pagan pagan people who are going to conquer God's people and the truly righteous. Behold, his soul, the, the, the pagan conqueror, the Babylonian, the Iraqi, he's arrogant. and He doesn't have a right heart in him. But here's what I call upon for you. Here's what marks 
the righteous man and woman. The righteous shall live by his faith, by trusting me. And that is picked up in the New Testament. It is picked up in the New Testament to mark where our life with God starts. Romans 1, 16 and 17 is the gospel of God, which is the power to salvation. For in it is revealed the righteousness which is by faith, the righteousness of God. The righteous shall live by his faith. It's also picked up in the book of Hebrews to say we live by faith even in the midst of our trials, even in the midst of our uh, pain and struggle. In other words, it's all faith. This life is one of trusting God. It all comes down to trusting God. And as Habakkuk was able to take this in and really appropriate this into his heart and keep preaching this truth to his heart, to take his heart in hand and say, I am not a victim of my feelings and a victim of my circumstances. Yes, I'm human. Yes, the struggle is real. But I take my hand in heart and I, I take my heart in hand and I preach the truth to my heart. And so it is I will hope in God. All right, let's move then finally to the third point for this morning. The second one is our only true an unshakable foundation. That's God and Jesus. Now our sure and certain hope. Again, familiar words. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Now, this is the. don't miss what Jesus is doing here. Okay? Right after chapter 13, right after he tells Peter, you're going to deny me before the sun comes up. Don't let your heart be troubled. Stand on the foundation you need to stand on. That's God. And let me help you understand the program here. Let me help you understand what's going to be going on. There are promises that you can cling to. And this is the first of those promises. He's basically telling them, I am going away, but I'm not abandoning you. That's going to be the message all the way through this. We're going to start hearing very soon about the promised spirit. He sends the spirit basically to be to us now what Jesus was to his followers when he was present physically here. He isn't just abandoning us. He isn't just leaving us, he says, as orphans. He's sending another, and we struggle to find a good English word for this. The Greek word is paraclete, and I'll just use that because I feel like helper is just a little bit. I'm sending you another to fulfill and be in your life what I have been in your life. I'm not just leaving you. But understand also that I'm going away with purpose for you. I'm going away to get things ready for you to come and be with me, and I'm going to come back, and I'm going to take you there. And you're going to spend time in eternity with me. Now, just a note on my father's house. Jesus is obviously referring to heaven here. Can you remember Jesus referring to my father's house, referring to anything else besides heaven? He also spoke of the temple in Jerusalem as my father's house. John chapter 2, verse 16. This is right in the middle of him uh, 
throwing, you know, throwing the money changers out of the temple, clean, cleansing the temple. He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Those are the only two places Jesus ever referred to as the house of God. The temple on earth and God's very presence in heaven. The temple on earth is where God said he would make his name or his presence to dwell among his people. And that's why you could call that building his house. God lives there. He said he would. He would meet with his people there. And that made that building sacred. But that building, we learn from the book of Hebrews, was just a shadow of the real house of God, which is where God himself is in his fullness and his glory, which we typically call heaven. This earthly building called the temple just was a picture to help us visualize the very presence of God. Where is the house of God on earth today. On earth. Where is it? Yeah, somebody just went like this. We know it's our bodies, our temple of the Holy Spirit, but also something else. I think we, we may miss this a lot in our circles. We, together, are being built the dwelling place for God. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. It's on the screen. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. People should be able to look to us and see the presence of God. Not to us individually alone, but to us collectively as a people. We did talk about that last week, I think. Love one another as I've loved you. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples. This is why I never refer to this building or any church building as the house of God or the house of the Lord. Because in the Bible, no, no other building but the temple is ever called the house of God. The closest parallel to church buildings would be synagogues. And God never said his presence dwells in any synagogue or church building. It dwelled in the temple on earth, and now it lives in us, his presence. He dwells in us. When the psalmist said in Psalm 122, verse 1, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord, he was not talking about going to church on Sunday. We are his house. And that changes our whole perspective, I think, on not only on this property, but on who we are and our responsibility. Notice also quickly that our modern versions say rooms. And that may be a little bit of a letdown or a disappointment to some of you. You're going, wait a minute, what happened to my mansion? <laughs> the word mansion actually comes from the Latin that was translated, you know, the original Greek was translated into Latin, and the Latin word is the basis of the English translation, mansions. I want you to get this, because this is pretty cool, I think. Where are these rooms said to be? In the house of our Father, our Heavenly Father. In other words, we're not going up to heaven to get to be out in the countryside in our own private mansion, we're going to be living in the house of God himself. 
And I dare suspect any suite that you are given in God's house is going to far outstrip any Downton Abbey or any other place you might want to live. And you won't even care by the time you are in that amazing, glorious place. The word simply means, as translated rooms, it simply means a place to live. And what is Jesus telling us? See, this is his promise to men whose hearts are breaking and and struggling and anxious and fearful. When our lives are disturbed and our peace is broken and our hearts are troubled, it may be because we're putting too much stock in this world. He's calling us to lift up our eyes and remember that this world is not our home. Remember that old song, any of you? This world's not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Look at the young people. They've never heard this song. (laughs) All right, well, we need to wrap this up. So Jesus, I just want you to notice what Jesus is doing here. We've said in chapter 13, love. Greatest commandment, or the new commandment, that you love one another. Then we've said, faith, believe in God, believe also in me. Now what do we have here? We have our hope. Our sure and certain hope. And our sure and certain hope is this. Jesus is making ready for us. And when it is time, he is coming back to take us to be with him. That is what the scripture calls our hope. That is the real future that we can rely on regardless of what happens in our own lives. We cannot really say with Job, though you slay me, or though he slay me, I will hope in him, unless we can also say with Job, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. That's Jesus' first prescription for a troubled heart. First promise for a troubled heart. Our blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.